Welcome to the Creative Push, an intimate and diverse artist interview series. Here, artists and makers of all kinds share tips, advice, knowledge, and inspiration that you can learn from. I'm your host, Sherry O'Neill, a photographer, artist, writer, and educator. This series is a part of the Learn and Create platform to help artists further their education in creativity, art, and business. Welcome to the Creative Push. Today, I have Valentine Adams. He is a visual artist and a sculptor. Welcome, I'm Valentine. I'm so glad to be here. Tell us about your work and how you got started. I grew up in Connecticut in a very small town called Bethlehem, Connecticut. And houses were spread so far apart. My nearest neighbor was like two miles away. I was really on my own when I came home from school, unless I wanted to pedal great distances. So I had to use my imagination a lot. I remember this oddball book that was very 70s, like crystal, you know, new age. And one of the topics that I was fascinated by was telekinesis and how you could move a ball. It was a matter of overcoming yourself. And I really feel like that was this very beginning splinter of, I can actually crack the sky of the reality I see and find something that is to the rest of the world impossible if I believe enough. Making sure nobody was around <laughs> watching me stare at a steel ball I had put <laughs> on the table. I would spend time still just looking at it. It was almost like Luke Skywalker, where it was like when he has the helmet on and he's tracing, how can I hit a ball with a lightsaber with a helmet on? And so that was me. And I would just sit there. And then sometimes I would swear it moved a little bit. I look back on that and I realized I was really probably never trying to move the ball so much as I was trying to move myself. I was trying to calibrate myself for the possibility of impossibility because I wanted to be a voyager in that space. And from there, I had a wild childhood of blazing trails when there used to be hundreds of acres of just cows. And I would have entire stories worked out in my head as if I was on my own island. It was my way to combat loneliness because I didn't have a lot of friends nearby. So I had to kind of make my friends in my head and get acquainted with them. I went into the military. It was kind of like William Blake, you know, the songs of innocence and experience. And so my songs of innocence of my childhood passed and then experience in the military and to see the best and the worst of people was another big tidal wave that washed against my spirit because I realized how beautiful and how depraved people could be. I wanted to soak all of that in. I was like the Nick Carraway of Great Gatsby. You know, I was the guy who was really watching it all and capturing it all in my mind. You know, I saw things that I couldn't quite reconcile in theaters of combat and areas like that. I kind of bento boxed it. I compartmentalized it like, okay, this is happening, but I have a mission at hand. I'm responsible for people. And I'm going to get back to that later. Really not intending to really get back to it later. I'm just going to put it in a box and put it in my closet. I did just that. But the adage in the military is that the military teaches you to walk a thousand miles into the jungle. They do not teach you to walk, how to walk a thousand miles out. In that process, being a civilian all of a sudden again, it's just almost like opening a bottle of seltzer water 
all those dissolved bubbles started coming up and I started feeling this uneasiness of myself and it was really PTSD and because I didn't have a horse to pet for equine therapy. I just had these bars of metal that were at my house in Austin, Texas at the time. And I, I felt almost this anger and anguish. It was as if being back in this world, the adage, there was the man who complained about having no shoes, who then met the man who had no feet. And my experience in being out in the world was with the man with no feet and then to come back to the man complaining who has no shoes. I had this really strong bootstrap yourself, be the master of your destiny. Those things combined by my childhood informed me as an artist and I started bending metal. I didn't have a welder. I was a metal sculptor without a welder or a heat source. But I was bending metal because it felt good. Because I think what it was is I realized I, was, I felt powerless. And I think a lot of us feel powerless. You know, and a lot of us are contending with our brokenness in good and bad ways. Some people self-medicate. Some people destroy themselves. Some people do that for some time and go into rehab and get right. Me, I was like Forrest Gump. I ran. <laughs> you know, it was physical effort for me that really snuffed that fire. Strangely, I started making these little pieces just for me. I didn't have any aspirations to be anything. But then as it happens, somebody says, hey, what you're making doesn't suck. <laughs> and you're you start thinking, oh, really? Somebody actually likes this besides me. Okay. Well, maybe I'll do a little bit more because I like doing it. It's something where I lose track of time. And so I did. That started it all off. That's how I became an artist. I made a guitar sculpture for Hunter Hayes for the CMAs. Um, I was still in Austin, Texas. This was such a huge deal because it was the part of being an artist where you need to have rhinoceros skin. This thing was done weeks and I continued on it because I wanted it to be perfect. I was chasing this notion of perfection and I realized that I needed to just put it in the box and send it off. And everything went well. Give us an idea of your technique. How has your creativity come to you? How do you go through the process of creating your art? I have very good intentions. I start making something and in the process of making it, I start becoming granular and I look at something that I'm making and I'm like, wow, that's the texture of that is so beautiful because I love patinas and I love finishes. And so I'll start exploring the texture. It's like a baby of the original art concept. So I'm like, oh, I got to put this over here. And I'll go back to the original concept and I'll work on that. But then the dessert for me is that if I finish what I'm doing, which I do, I'm very mindful of my time, my deadlines, that I get to have the dessert of that texture that came out of it. And I will begin working on that. It's like, here's texture. Now, what am I going to become, Val Adams? What are you going to do with me? Are you going to let me haunt you in your shop? Because that's what I do. I keep those pieces. It's like my community. I liken it a lot to the scene from Blade Runner with the toy maker, where he has all of these toys and some of them are half built and some of them are completely functional and some of them are just dummies. <laughs> so it's my family when I go into my shop. It's an island of misfit toys. They're all broken in a way. They're made from old pieces, but old pieces of metal resonate with me. 
so much. They, they carry history and nostalgia. And I want to find the family that they belong to in this beautiful array of strange pieces of metal that I have. That becomes the process. A lot of times I have to be cautious as artists do of grabbing the Bengal tiger of that by the tail and letting it drag me through the briar bushes <laughs> because I will hang on. And that's like my thing. It's like, I am not going to let go of this. Sometimes the inspiration slash fear is fleeting. You get this hot, cold moment and material and machine, which is my welder, and machine, which is me. <laughs> that candle may burn through and go out. My process is very frenetic at times, but I'm so zen in my mind. The least stressful time of my day is when I'm in that place. And people will ask you, what are you thinking when you're doing that? And I say, I don't know. I'm not. I'm letting myself, as my favorite English teacher, Claire Eby, would always say, always be a beginner. So I would let go of this laser focus I would have when I was finding pieces in the junkyard and just let it happen. Hey guys, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the creative push. These artist interviews are a labor of love, but it sure would help if you'd consider supporting this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain the work and time it takes for me to produce future episodes. You can click the support button or you can click the link below in the show notes. Any support is greatly appreciated and you can cancel at any time. Either way, I'm glad to have you here. Please subscribe and share. Now let's get back to the show. What is creativity to you? It kind of tethers a lot to my life philosophy, which is I should never settle for the notion of the world that I see, that there is always another layer of newness and exploration to be found beneath the layer that I'm on. I think of myself as a pearl diver. You know, I've learned to hold my breath and go beyond the crushed depth of the Mariana Trench to the bottom where I can't even see. You have to have the courage and the discipline to do that again and again, to develop your lungs, to go deeper, and you go into the blackness and in search of this thing you think you're gonna find, but it isn't always what you think when you get to the surface. I grab things in the darkness of my search and my process. I bring them to the surface. And sometimes it's not even close to what I thought I had, which is wondrous to me. I think there are more people that are artists than they think. A lot of people will kind of deny, I'm not an artist at all. But then I listen to them. I'm like, you kind of are. <laughs> you just haven't, maybe you haven't found your medium yet, but you have a heart of an artist. Creativity is the preservation of the notion of magic. And I like to embrace that notion because there's something divine about that. It's so tempting to be life-weary, to feel like you've seen everything and heard every conversation. That road seems to me like a existential cul-de-sac. So I prefer to be off-road, bushwhacking, like when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you get stuck? I grab my kayak because I live on Percy Priest Lake. It's a lot of exercise to get to the points where I go. I use my iPhone to drop pins of places I've searched, and I am methodically going around all of the waterfront of Percy Priest, which will probably take me my lifetime, as big as it is, <laughs> and searching for interesting wood. I have a battery-powered chainsaw. I'll cut it off, I'll bring it back with me, and it becomes part of my collection. In the process, I'm out on the water and I'm weightless. A lot of things about working with metal are heavy. 
Share with me your favorite story of one of your art pieces. That's going to have to probably be a sculpture that is in front of the Brentwood Library. It's the largest sculpture I've ever made. It's called Read and Unwind. It was such an amazing opportunity to place art as I realized it was going to be a hood ornament to a multi-million dollar <laughs> library. The interesting story behind it is that I researched it very well. What I do with anything that I make is I want to have an understanding of the site before I build the thing. I want to honor the geography, the land with the metal that I use. So I researched everything about the Brentwood Library and the land it was on. And I realized that this actually used to be an Indian burial ground. The Stonebox Indians uh, was an Indian tribe that was there. And they actually excavated and moved those and relocated them. But I was fascinated by the Stonebox Indians, which was a really strange name. I recognized that they were buried with these beautiful conch shells that had been lovingly carved so that the nautilus shape of it, they would go into the afterlife with that and that it would bring them back somehow spiritually. And I was like, wow, what a neat notion. And I made this thing. And if you look from above, it looks like a conch shell unwinding, but it is actually a 6,000 pound functional art piece. <laughs> And it took a lot of work. It took a lot of time, better part of a year to make working while I was making other things. The fascinating thing was that when I was done, I had to have it moved. It was so heavy and it was sitting in my driveway. And so the library contacted the public works department. Public works department shows up with like eight guys. And now remember, I'm ex-military. These guys, a lot of them were also ex-military. And there's something about military culture. They're salt of the earth. They don't care to be in the limelight. They care to be a part of the team that gets the mission done. We instantly hit it off because they looked at it as one of them said, this is the first piece of art that I've had to move that I don't hate. They brought the biggest excavator. They drove it to Brentwood South, which is my subdivision. They got this thing on there and they lifted it and the back wheels were starting to come off. So they had to rebrace it and everything. They figured it out. They loaded it up. They were technically supposed to put it on a truck, but the guy who was in charge and he just looked at it. He said, fuck it. We're going to drive it there on the excavator. Now, you got to keep in mind, Franklin Road, it is so busy. He was like, no, nope, we're going to drive it. They had to go three miles an hour and they created a temporary carpocalypse in Brentwood. We're Range Rovers, you know, people who are just like, Range Rovers like, what's going on here? So the police would pull up alongside the guy who was in charge. We're just obeying the law and getting it there safe. We did get it there and it did get there safe and it did get placed where it was supposed to be placed because it's a library bench. It is supposed to be interactive. I want desperately for my art to draw people in so that they can interact with it. That's what gives me the best feeling in the world. Because when I make my art and it is where it belongs, it is no longer mine. It belongs to that site, that geographical place. And it takes on the texture of that place. The real interesting thing that I didn't even see coming was during the dedication, I had to say a few words about it. You know, there were kids there and Stonebox Indians yawn. <laughs> I could see the kids falling asleep already. 
So what I did is I talked about one of the specific pieces that is on that sculpture. It is a broken valve handle that was given to me by a first responder to 9-11. It was from the North Tower. It was something that he kept as a personal reminder that he was there. He gave it to me confidentially, and he said, I've been reminded too much by this now of what this is and where I was, and I want to move on. I'm going to give it to you because to me, it's starting to feel like kryptonite. Please don't leave it in the darkness. Bring it into the light. Let it mean something. That 6,000-pound sculpture, if it was a hoard ornament for the library, that valve handle was a hood ornament for that sculpture for me. It informed the purpose and necessity of getting it right. So I told that story to a room full of people. And there was the great unveiling. And wouldn't you know, of everything there was to see on that sculpture, everybody wanted to know, where's the valve? (laughs) (laughs) Which was really on top and in the back. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. There's actually a front to see, too. (laughs) Like everybody's posing with the valve hand and doing selfies. You know, that's beautiful because... That's what I always want my art to do is I want you to approach it and see something new because you're far away from it. And it's like, wow, look at that very interesting newness and beauty and something I haven't seen before. And as they get closer, they realize it is new, but it's made with very old salvaged parts. There's a beautiful dissonance of that. I care that that people go into that library who are blue collar and white collar, and they can find all find their own appreciation into it. There's a deficit of respect and pride and vocation in our country that other countries have. We should all be proud of what we do, no matter what we do, just that we're able to do it. And I have seen those people save lives. Those people, those blue collar workers, they're the ones who tend to give the most to charity, ironically, because they're giving what little they have because they care. They know what it's like to hurt. What would you like to learn that you don't know yet? What's beautiful about Nashville is that the community of artists is so open-minded to collaborating. I've been fascinated by glassblowing. I met a couple of different glassworkers. They opened my mind to the notion of bringing glass into my metalwork, which opened my mind to bringing wood into my metalwork. That was the gift of collaboration. The coldness of metal can be counterbalanced by the warmth and color of glass and wood. So now I'm kind of fascinated in that. As I grow older, I want to help people. My art has been an homage to all of the people I've seen in my life who have struggled and broken. And I want them and me to feel life, vitality, and ideally magic again. Purpose beyond purpose. I've found myself to be an unwitting advocate for the homeless, an advocate for salvaging and reuse. I want the world to have new eyes. What are you working on now? I'm working on a collaborative piece, my very first collaborative piece with co-artist Randy Purcell. He is taking pieces of wood through his process of using beeswax and lifting prints and embossing it. I get to now have these pieces of wood that are strange geometric shapes. I'm interweaving them into my sculpture. It's a collaborative piece that we're going to be presenting during this Greenworks art show. Our theme would be cross-pollination. Do you have any advice for an up-and-coming artist? Yes, I do. 
Um, my very first prime piece of advice is to, I went through a pro program called Periscope. Periscope is a Nashville-based um, uh, arts and business is supported by the Entrepreneur Center, the, uh, the Nashville Metro Arts. It's, it's a boot camp for artists to learn how to not just make art, treat your art as a business because that is fundamental to the giftedness, whatever your gift and modality might be. If you want to stay alive, you need to do that other thing. Ooh, which artist can, it's like, oh my gosh, accounting, managing my time. Find a way to make your art a discipline using QuickBooks, file taxes, keeping your receipts and coming up with filing systems all of these left brain things that artists are for. Find somebody who can mentor you, maybe even just an individual who can do, who's doing that well. Thank you so much for your time. This has been so fun. Thank you, Sherry. It's been an honor. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my intention is to offer inspiration that excites you to want to get out there and create something amazing. Be sure to check out some of the other episodes. There's more information below in the show notes, including links to other great stories, tips, and resources. Drop me a message or comment at any time, and I hope that you'll sign up to be a part of this creative tribe.